What Makes a Killer contains graphic details of sexual assault and violence and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is strongly advised. 1984, Tampa, Florida. A 17-year-old girl named Lisa was on her way home from work when she was abducted from the side of the road. For the next 26 hours, she was subjected to a terrifying imprisonment by a sadistic sexual predator who had already killed several young women. But unlike the other victims, Lisa was the only one to survive. A sexual sadist, a man who's thought nothing of abusing, mutilating, stabbing women. He was a man who had a ferocious hatred of women. As bodies were being discovered every other week, Florida authorities came to grips with the fact that a serial killer was at work. Each crime scene was was like somebody crazed, uh, not even somebody, something, monster type. Investigators didn't know it yet, but the killer was a 31-year-old Army veteran and divorced father of two hiding in plain sight. And over the course of eight months, he would snuff out the lives of 10 women in the Tampa area. I don't know if I was blind or, you know, but I I never imagined in a million years that he was capable of doing the things that he's done. He was an animal, you know, and I mean, this is somebody that I loved. This is What Makes a Killer, a true crime series that chronicles the lives of the world's most notorious killers. I'm your host, Jennifer Natoso. In every episode, we'll trace a killer's origins, examine their behavior, and follow their path to bloodshed. In this episode, we'll discuss Bobby Joe Long. Bobby Joe Long was born on October 14, 1953, in Canova, West Virginia. His parents divorced when he was two years old, and young Bobby Joe ended up with his mother. After the separation, mother and son moved to Florida. Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley talks about the financial struggles Bobby Joe's mother faced. So Bobby Joe Long's mother used to work in bars. She was single. She was on her own with him. Um, She had to go out and work. She was the breadwinner. As a child, Long suffered a laundry list of accidents which resulted in a head injury and bouts of unconsciousness. These incidents ranged in severity from falling off a swing to falling downstairs to once being thrown from a horse. One of his more serious injuries occurred when he was seven. Long was hit by a car, and the accident left him with a deformed jaw and teeth. Author Anna Flowers speaks more about the aftermath of that accident. The kids would worry him to death about that, and uh, and he finally had an operation on that as well. He wore those scars, you know, all of his life. Because money was scarce, Long and his mother lived in a one-bedroom apartment and even slept in the same bed until he was a teenager. Long's ex-wife, Cindy Brown, recalls what he told her about his relationship with his mother. He would tell me that certain nights that she would come home with a, a boyfriend that he would get woke up and put on the couch while the boyfriend spent the night with her. Author and journalist Jeffrey Wansel weighs in. Long slept with his mother, which often angered him when she brought home a man, of which there are a string. And I think it's in there somewhere. 
that the genesis of Long's loathing for women began. When you look at how he speaks about his mother and, and what he thought about her, he held her in, in quite a lot of contempt and disdain. He said some very offensive things about her. He criticised the fact that she worked as a barmaid, that she wore revealing outfits. And, and that, for me, says that he's got some incredibly fixed and, and very conservative views about women, who they are, how they should behave. They should look after their husbands, look after their children. He's got a very fixed idea of, of, of men as breadwinners and, and women as caregivers. Long carried feelings of resentment and neglect into his adulthood. He had a horrible resentment towards his mother. And to be very honest with you, had I have ever heard that he you know, had harmed his mom, I probably wouldn't have been surprised because he really did have a hate for his mother. As time went on, uh, the more time she, she paid to men, uh, the more he resented it. And, and psychiatrists have said that that's part of his problem, that, that he was actually killing his mother. Again and again, he hated women. In addition to his troubled home life, Bobby Joe Long had been born with a genetic condition that would later cause significant self-confidence issues for the young boy's masculinity. He had Kleinfelter syndrome, which meant that he had two X chromosomes and one Y. Those with Kleinfelter syndrome can develop enlarged breast tissue caused by high levels of estrogen. This happened to Bobby Joe Long, to his great embarrassment, and I think also heightened the fact that he loathed women. When he was 13, Long underwent surgery to remove the extra tissue. The procedure left him with large scars that made him self-conscious about his body. When we were kids, you know, we were always swimming down in the Keys and everything. He would always keep a shirt on because he was embarrassed of the scars from the surgery. As a teenager, his deep physical self-loathing and hatred towards his mother were coming together to make Bobby Joe Long into an angry young man. And that anger would soon turn violent. In 1966, Bobby Joe Long was living in a one-bedroom apartment with his mother in Tampa, Florida. By working as a waitress in local bars and restaurants, his mother was eventually able to save up and move them to the Miami suburbs. She was hopeful that in this new location, she would be able to give him a better life. 13-year-old Long was enrolled at Hialeah High School in Miami-Dade County. Here, he became close friends with a young girl named Cindy. Our childhood was great. I, you know, we used to go to the movies, we'd go fishing, we'd go hunting, we'd go to the Keys scuba diving. It was a very normal childhood for the South Florida area. Long didn't excel in high school, and after leaving, got a job as an electrician's assistant. When he was 19, he used his new trade knowledge to join the Army. And on January 25, 1974, he married childhood sweetheart Cindy. Yeah, he swept me off my feet really hard. And um, I don't know, I just, I guess I just fell madly in love with him, you know, and thought that in the fairy tale world, that this was going to be my husband and we were going to live together forever. But there would be no fairy tale ending for Cindy. Shortly after the wedding, Long began to show his true colors. If there was another guy that would talk to me or anything, he would just have a fit about it. 
A few times he accused me of, you know, messing around with people, which I had not. Controlling, he would tell me what I was going to eat. He hated the smell of popcorn for whatever reason. So, you know, that was always something that he would just have a fit about if I was eating popcorn or garlic. He didn't like garlic. I mean, it was just like you were basically his puppet on the string, you know, and that should have been a red flag to me, but it, you know, I was young, I was in love. On March 14, 1974, Long sustained another serious head injury, this time in a motorcycle accident. After he recovered, those closest to Long say his behavior changed dramatically. I think that if possible, the motorcycle accident just kind of knocked the screw loose that was holding everything together at the time. Forensic pathologist Dr. Stuart Hamilton says this change in behavior isn't uncommon. The long-term effects of a head injury, some people will be fine. Others, it can seriously affect personality. If your brain is damaged, particularly at the front, you can almost become a different person. Long was hospitalized for five months. According to the nursing staff at the time, he was constantly pleasuring himself. When he returned home, Cindy found that he had turned violent towards her. Long had also become obsessed with sex and demanded she be intimate with him at least twice a day. So brain injuries, particularly to the frontal lobes, they can affect impulse control. They can make you sexually disinhibited. And I think in Long's case, we certainly can see some suggestions that that injury has changed who he was. Long was discharged from the Army on medical grounds and retrained as a radiologist. As they moved into this new chapter, Bobby Joe and Cindy had two children. My son was born in 1974, and then when he was six months old, we discovered I was pregnant with our daughter, who was born in 1975. So it was almost like having twins around, but he was always a good father to them. So he was never violent towards our kids. Despite the abuse, Cindy stayed in the marriage. They always have the knack to turn it around, to, you know, make it your fault. And you as the victim, you, you know, you believe it is your fault. So you're constantly walking around on eggshells trying to please this person. And, you know, nine times, you can't please them. He used to have the habit of getting on top of me on the bed or the couch, and he'd put his knees like right here where I couldn't move my arms, and he would just sit there and like smack me in the face. Then that became a habit of when he was, you know, very upset with me. After the birth of their second child in 1975, 22-year-old Bobby Joe started going out more often and refused to tell Cindy where he was going. He was leaving the house at nighttime telling me that he you know, just needed to go out and clear his mind and get away from the kids and myself and everything. In my heart, I felt like he was probably seeing somebody. Bobby Joe Long wasn't hiding an affair. However, he was hiding a terrible secret. He was finding women and raping them. Well, when we look at serial killers, they very rarely go from normal, non-criminal individuals to killers overnight. He set out on a scheme by answering ads, classified ads, he specifically targeted bedroom furniture. But even if it was something in the kitchen or something in the front room, he went to the house. If he discovered that the woman was on her own, he would rape her and then leave her. By night, he was a rapist. 
sexually assaulting women he found in the classified ads of the local paper. And by day, his violent behavior escalated at home. In June 1980, a particularly severe beating required Cindy to go to the emergency room. There, she lied about how she'd sustained her injuries. Hospital staff believed she was the victim of domestic violence and called the police, but she continued to lie to them. I have walked around for the last 30-plus years regretting the fact that I never did have him arrested. When she returned home, the rattled Cindy decided to take matters into her own hands. I came home that night, and I loaded a double-barreled shotgun, and I sat there until his alarm went off with it at his head cocked, trying to get the nerve to pull the trigger. I was so humiliated from being at the hospital and the police officer knowing that I was lying and the doctor knowing I was lying and I was tired of being his punching bag. But she couldn't pull the trigger. The only reason was because of my kids. Kept thinking, you know, who will raise them? He's going to be dead. I'm going to be in jail. But I mean, this is how demented he had my mind to. Long sexually assaulted at least 50 women in Florida over the course of 10 years. His victims were completely random and impossible for authorities to connect. The mystery perp became known as the classified ad rapist. With no evidence to link Long to the attacks, he continued his assaults on unsuspecting women. It was a consistently dramatic way of discovering victims. He didn't go searching for them on the street. He wasn't hiding in the bushes or waiting in the park. He was a perfectly ordinary bloke answering a classified ad and saying, oh, I'd like to see the item you've got for sale. Cindy was completely unaware of her husband's grotesque extracurricular activities. But in 1980, she finally had enough and found the courage to file for divorce. He was an animal, you know? And I mean, this is somebody that I loved. I mean, when I tell you I loved him, I loved him, you know, your first true love. And how could I have been so blinded? Long eventually moved out and went to the Tampa Bay area. When we first got divorced, we, you know, weren't very kind to each other because there was still so much animosity, but we still had to contact each other because we had the two children. Probably around 1982 or 83, we started where we could be civil to one another. And, you know, in, I had forgiven him for what he had done to me, just with the understanding that, you know, he's a sick individual. By the time they finally divorced, I think Long had decided that his only true satisfaction would be in a great many sexual partners. Bobby Joe Long had a fresh hunting ground in Tampa Bay and took to finding women in an area locals called the Strip. Here, his offenses would worsen, and he would go from being the classified ad rapist to a serial killer. Tampa Bay, Florida, 1984. Bobby Joe Long was newly divorced and was about to embark on a sadistic, murderous spree. Preying on vulnerable young women in the red-light district of Tampa, 
his need for sexual gratification was insatiable. On May 10th, an exotic dancer named Lana had arranged to meet her boyfriend after work and was walking along the strip. Author Anna Flowers and criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley describe what happened next. She, uh, she had relocated from California, and she had a boyfriend. She was often asked to go home, you know, to be taken home, but she didn't usually do that, even though that was extra money. Bobby Jolong came along in the car, and he stopped the car and asked her if she'd like a ride. She got into the car, and that was his first known victim in that killing frenzied period. What's happened to her is that Bobby Jo Long has picked her up, driven her to a remote location, uh, and killed her. Here's somebody who is literally just plucking women off the streets. He's identifying his victim as, as somebody he thinks he's entitled to, um, as somebody he thinks that, that he can just pick up and use and discard. Lana's body was found three days later by two boys near East Bay Road in Tampa. She had been brutally raped, strangled, and left in a depraved pose. She had the hangman's noose around her neck, and she was cut. It was out of control. The, the, the ligatures showed signs of, of a knife, and he just left her in the field. Author and journalist Jeffrey Wansell weighs in. It is almost impossible to imagine the terror There's no suggestion that he raped her after her death. He raped her and then strangled her. He had tied her hands behind her back. I think that was long trying to humiliate his victims, to humiliate women. This was was one of those those cases where you have this first murder and the, the individual who's been killed is associated with the sex work trade. Is, is somebody who's seen as less deserving. And very often these murders don't get the same attention, don't get the, the same kind of investigation as others. So very often these first murders are real opportunities to apprehend a serial killer before they kill again. On May 26th, Long struck again. This time he picked up a 22-year-old sex worker named Michelle on the strip. Was a beauty queen at one time, and, and she was very pretty, but she was a drug addict, and, uh, and so she did that to support her, uh, her habit. After she got in the car, Long drove to Park Road, known as a lover's lane among locals. There, he tied her up, beat her, and viciously raped her. When he was finished, he threw her out of the car. However, Michelle was still alive. This victim has got spirit, and she puts up a fantastic fight, which makes him extremely angry. So angry, indeed, that he not only does he try and strangle her, he then goes on to cut her throat. He really didn't care. He wanted to to get his pleasure, have his fun, and then just simply dispose of these women. When you're getting to that level of brutality, we are beyond simply ending a life. We are into cruelty, we are into doing things for Long's own perverted pleasure, and that, to my mind, is evil. Strangulation and the use of ligatures became Long's trademarks. He would use ropes and a series of knots to create a collar that resembled a noose. With strangulation, you're very physically close, and you have complete control 
you have ownership of that other person while you're strangling them and you know you have power of life and death literally in your hands. Michelle's body was found a day later by a construction worker in an isolated area of Hillsborough County. Long's victims didn't seem to share any physical traits, but all of them were young women and many were sex workers. They were all women who were out and about on Nebraska Avenue or around that vicinity. Now, this was quite a notorious area of the red light district. So this suggests that this is somebody who is targeting people who they believe to be sex workers. He would target, focus on women whom he knew could be tempted into his car. They were the classic serial killer victim. How often have we talked about how vulnerable sex workers are to a serial killer. Bobby Joe Long falls into the stereotype. I think he made a conscious decision in early 1984 to start killing. And once he started, he simply could not stop. When, when he started killing prostitutes, the flamboyant strip was full of fear. And uh, it was absolute terror. On June 8th, Long picked up a 22-year-old factory worker named Elizabeth, who had been in the red light area of Nebraska Avenue. He doesn't look like a monster. He's incredibly charming, he's incredibly charismatic, and he's good-looking. So he's able to disarm you quite easily. Like those before her, Elizabeth felt safe enough to accept a ride from Long, unaware that it would be her last. She got in the car, and it went, went through the same M.O., raped her violently on the front seat of, of his car, took her to a remote place, and uh, continued to rape and torture her. Long strangled Elizabeth with rope and discarded her body. He also stole her debit card and used it to empty her bank account. Elizabeth's body was found 16 days later in an orange grove in Brandon, Florida, approximately 10 miles from Nebraska Avenue. The line between rape and murder is extremely thin. This is a man who is now addicted, obsessed to rape and murder. Two months, three bodies. Law enforcement had no witnesses, no solid leads, and no way to identify the killer. I think here's somebody who felt that they were entitled to kill these women. He had a very black and white outlook. There were women who were respectable and there were women who were not respectable. And he felt that, that he was the one who could decide which ones lived and which ones died. And I think if he was honest and you asked him why did he commit these murders, because he wanted to, and it's as simple as that. It's not about simple killing. It's about the power and control over women. That was exactly what Bobby Joe Long was demonstrating. I have ultimate control. It seemed Long's bloodlust was insatiable. On October 7th, the body of an 18-year-old sex worker named Chanel was discovered by the entrance road of a cattle ranch near the Pasco-Hillsboro County line in Florida. She'd been shot in the neck. Local police were at a loss. They still had no evidence to point them in the right direction. Bobby Joe Long was free to kill again. And just a week later, police made another grim discovery. On October 14, 1984, the body of a 28-year-old sex worker named Karen was found in an orange grove in Hillsborough County. Her hands and feet were bound, and she had been struck on the forehead and strangled. 
Karen was from a very upper middle class family in St. Petersburg. An excellent student, she had it all. But in high school, she got hooked on drugs. And, uh, and it just turned her whole life around because she lost her ambition to, to succeed at anything but just support her habit. By mid-October 1984, investigators had collected forensic evidence from the crime scenes and bodies of all five victims. But the hot and humid Florida climate was making things difficult. You've got temperature degrading that body, you have predators, you have animals. If that body isn't found quickly, it is going to severely interfere with the forensic pathological investigation. It's almost like you're working against the clock. The evidence they were able to recover did suggest that all of the victims were likely linked to a single killer. Among the things they found were some distinctive red fibers and also some very distinctive tire tracks. And they were tire tracks that, that belonged to a specific type of, of tire. It was custom made um, for use on Cadillacs. So, so that was quite unique. So those were some common denominators. Those were some pieces of the puzzle. And eventually they would get put together. Deputies started patrolling Nebraska Avenue and West Kennedy Boulevard, hoping to catch the perpetrator. Investigators also created a profile of the murderer to help narrow down their search. He had the injuries from youth, head injuries, uh, birth defects, all of it. They had uh, about a dozen things that serial killers had in common. Bobby Jolong had them all. He was a profile poster child of serial killing. On October 31st, police discovered the body of a sixth victim, a sex worker named Kimberly Hopps. She was found in an isolated area of Hillsborough County. The authorities hunting the unknown killer desperately needed a breakthrough in the investigation. Little did they know that Long himself was about to hand it to them. In 1984, Investigators were on the hunt in Florida for an unknown serial killer. In five months, the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office had discovered the bodies of six women, but they had very little evidence to go on, leaving Bobby Joe Long free to continue killing. On November 3rd, at around 2 a.m., a 17-year-old girl named Lisa was cycling home from her job at a donut shop in northern Tampa. Long pulled up alongside her, and grabbed her from her bike at gunpoint. He dragged her into his car, where he blindfolded her. Then, he made her remove her clothes and bound her hands, wrist, and feet before forcing her to perform oral sex on him. Journalist Jeffrey Wansel talks about Long's deviation from his normal M.O. But this time, he doesn't drive her to some neglected field or other place. This time, unusually, he takes her to his apartment. Once at the apartment, Long raped her. Then he took her into the shower and washed her hair. In a stoic act of self-preservation, Lisa remained calm through the ordeal and complied with her tormentor. Author Anna Flowers speaks more about the terrifying night. And then he shifted like lightning and dragged her out of the shower and, and raped her in, 
And then he would talk to her, sweet talk, you know, I'm sorry, apologizing. I'm sorry we had to meet like this. You seem like a nice girl. I really like you. And, and then a simple request from her might be denied violently. Now, until this point, Bobby Joe Long's victims have always been terrified, killed, raped, killed immediately. But this is not the case with Lisa. Hoping to leave as much evidence as possible, Lisa made a conscious effort to touch as many objects and surfaces in the apartment as she could, especially in the bathroom. After hours in captivity, she gained Long's trust. With her blindfold still in place, Long let his guard down and allowed Lisa to touch his face. And she would be able to say, oh, he's got pox marks, or he's got a little mustache, or this or that. And just enough of seeing under the blindfold would, would identify other things. Later that night in the dark, he removed Lisa's blindfold. She convinces him that she will do whatever he wants, that she is no threat to him. He can do whatever he wants to her. She is somehow malleable in his hands. I think Bobby Joe Long kind of fell for her in a sort of way. But I think something else was going on as well. After 26 hours with Lisa in captivity, Long did something unexpected. The next morning, he said, it's, it's time to go. After driving a short distance, Long stopped to withdraw cash at an ATM near his apartment. With Long out of the car, Lisa adjusted her blindfold. Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley says Lisa made a mental note of everything she could see. She remembered that she'd been picked up in, in a red car, which was a Dodge Magnum. She remembered the word Magnum being on the interior of the car and on the seats. She remembered what Bobby Joe Long looked like. She also recalled that they'd stopped at an ATM. At approximately 4 a.m., Long dropped Lisa off in a parking lot in North Tampa. I think Long was beginning to think that this spree of killing and women, this rape and murder spree in Tampa Bay, was probably coming to an end. It is one of the most extraordinary facts of his case that he chose to let a victim go. And as he did so, he knew he was actually signing his own death warrant. Lisa walked home and woke her father, who immediately called the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office. She was able to give authorities a detailed description of her abductor. She knew that he had a red Dodge Magnum car and knew the location of the ATM they had stopped at. Her clothes were also submitted to the FBI forensic lab. Investigators quickly began circulating details of the suspect among law enforcement departments in Florida. Lisa's testimony was effectively the break in the case. No one knew or even suspected that Bobby Joe Long killed a number of women in the Tampa area. As Lisa's case was only classified as an abduction, investigators didn't initially connect it to the previous six murders. But over the course of the next eight days, two more bodies were discovered, one in neighboring Pasco County and the other in Hillsborough County. The first was an 18-year-old waitress named Virginia, and the second was a 21-year-old student named Kim Swan. On November 13th, police finally received forensic test results from the lab, and with them K-9 
became that breakthrough. Among the things they found were some distinctive red fibers and also some very distinctive tire tracks. The red fibers were a perfect match to those found on the bodies of seven of the eight other victims. And all were a match to the fibers discovered on clothing Lisa had been wearing during her abduction. Finally, with a solid lead and strong evidence linking Lisa's attacker to the other Florida murders, the police knew they had to act fast. They looked through records of ATM transactions. They looked through records of, of car ownership. And they honed in on a, a range of, of suspects. One of them was Bobby Joe Long. With forensic evidence, the tire marks, and the make and model of his car, the noose was tightening around Bobby Joe Long's neck. On November 14th, the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office formed a task force with four other law enforcement agencies, including the FBI in Florida, to catch the killer. You have a full-scale task force at work, absolutely determined to uh, nail the man who's been committing all these foul rapes and murders. The following day, on November 15th, Long's red magnum was spotted driving down Nebraska Avenue. Now, they needed to make sure that this was their guy, so they pulled him over in his car one day um, under the guise of, of looking for a suspect in a robbery, and they took a photograph of him uh, and then let him go. Lisa, Long's only surviving victim, was shown the photograph and was able to positively identify him as her abductor. On the same day, ATM records for Hillsborough County confirmed Lisa's testimony. The task force moved in at their first opportunity. And they followed him to a movie theater one day, and he went in and he watched a film, and the police waited outside for, for him to come out. On November 16, 1984, Bobby Joe Long was arrested outside of a movie theater. His Dodge Magnum was seized, and a sample of the red carpet from the vehicle was immediately submitted to the Florida Department of Law Enforcement Crime Lab. It took no time for Long to confess to the abduction and rape of Lisa. However, when he was questioned about the eight murders, he denied all knowledge of them. Within hours of sending the carpet sample from Long's car to the forensics lab, the results were back. The fibers were an exact match to the ones found on both the victims and on Lisa's clothes. So they tell him about the carpet fibers, um, and he realizes that the game is up. So what he's doing here is he's trying to get back in control. So he confesses to the murders. He said, yes, it was me. And Long had another confession for the police. While being interviewed, he revealed the location of another victim, a 21-year-old waitress named Vicky in Hillsborough County. But by that point, he was well aware that scales of justice were certainly tipping against him. As if to dot the I's and cross the T's, Long drew them a map of where he dumped Vicky's body. If there was a final nail in his coffin, that was most certainly it. Later, Long made a call to his ex-wife, Cindy. When I answered the phone, I could tell right away something was wrong in his voice. And he said, you know, the girls, I killed the girls in Tampa. And I said, you know, you're not funny. Don't mess with me like that. And then Bob asked me, he said to um, call his parents and tell our children that he was killed in a car accident. And I said, I'm not going to lie to our kids. You know, and, it, and I couldn't lie to them. Six days after his arrest, 
Another body was found in rural southern Hillsborough County. 18-year-old Artis was a sex worker Long had picked up in March 1984. He quickly confessed to her murder. After further investigation, it's believed that Artis was his first victim, bringing Long's victim count up to 10. On April 22, 1985, in Dade City, Pasco County, Florida, Long was tried for the murder of 18-year-old waitress and sex worker Virginia. He was found guilty and was sentenced to death by electric chair. On September 23, 1985, Long pleaded guilty to eight counts of first-degree murder, eight counts of kidnapping, and seven of sexual battery. He also pleaded guilty to the charges of sexual battery and kidnapping of Lisa. After several appeals, the death penalty he received for the murder of Virginia was revoked, and he was sentenced to serve at least four 99-year sentences, 28 life sentences, one five-year sentence for aggravated assault, and one death sentence for the murder of his third victim, Michelle. There's quite a bit of toing and froing after this when you look at the, the trial, when you look at his appeals. So he wants to withdraw his guilty plea, then he wants to reinstate it. And what's happening here is he's enjoying pulling other people's strings. So when he's in prison, there's very, very little that he's got control over. But one of the things that he can control is his plea. And he's using that to his full advantage. He really is a puppet master. In April 2019, the Florida governor signed Long's death warrant for Michelle. Long tried to appeal several times, but was unsuccessful. On May 23, 2019, Bobby Joe Long was executed by lethal injection, more than 30 years after his conviction. Well, in a single spree, he killed 10 young women and not only killed them, abducted them, subjected them to dreadful abuse. He was, without question, one of the most depraved killers in recent times in the United States. What Makes a Killer is an Audio Boom original series in production with Woodcut Media and hosted by me, Jennifer Natoso. This series is produced by Audio Boom's Blair Payton, Lauren Vogel, Pam Burrows, and Karen Bevan. Production for Woodcut Media by Andy Papadopoulos, Jenny Day, and Kula Anastasi. Original music by Ben Kregi. Executive producer for Woodcut is Kate Beale, and for Audio Boom are Brendan Regan and Stuart Last. A special thanks to the friends and families of victims willing to share their stories. Thank you for listening to this season of What Makes a Killer. Follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and be the first to know when we return for Season 6. In the meantime, you can binge seasons one through five on all major podcast apps. 